This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Will Iran's nuclear aspirations put pressure on Britain and America's special relationship, Chicago Hope? We leave Chicago with a clear roadmap. Our coalition is committed to this plan to bring our war in Afghanistan to a responsible end. But is a responsible drawdown possible? And a song for Europe, the intense geopolitics involved in the Eurovision Song Contest. Is Iran trying to build a nuclear bomb? Is Israel going to retaliate? If so, what should Britain do? Questions the British government is wrestling with and pressing issues for the world's leading powers who met with Iran in Baghdad this week. Last night, the Chief of Defence Staff, General Sir David Richards, was in Washington, where he warned that the West would have to be ready to deal with the consequences of an Israeli attack on Iran's nuclear facilities. Well, BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is here, and on the line is Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford. Hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Rogers, at this standoff over uranium enrichment has gone on for the best part of a decade now. Can you just outline once and for all the arguments made by each side? Well, the argument made by Iran is that it has an absolute right to enrich uranium, uh, certainly to reactor grade, which is about 4%, and it believes also to the 20% required by some research reactors, one of which it does have, in fact, purchased from the United States over 30 years ago. It has its own uranium supplies, its own uranium ores, and it points out that countries like Brazil have big enrichment plants. It claims that uh, nuclear power is a symbol of modernity, and it also claims it is not developing nuclear weapons. But the problem is that if you can enrich uranium for civil uses, the same process can lead on to developing nuclear weapons. The other side of the coin, particularly from the Israelis, is they suspect that what Iran is really about is developing the capability to develop nuclear weapons using all the technologies and knowledge that you acquire on the civil side. And they simply do not accept that Iran wants nuclear power as a symbol of modernity, but doesn't want nuclear weapons. That's at the root of the standoff, and the Israeli view is shared pretty strongly in the United States, perhaps less so in some parts of Europe. OK, the, the progress in Baghdad, if any, has there been some? There has been some, yes. I mean, the very fact that you have these negotiations, Cathy Ashton and her opposite number, Saeed Jalili, uh, had long talks yesterday. They didn't reach a formal agreement. Uh, they stayed on overnight, and there's a second batch of talks going on today. The likelihood is that a proper agreement could take months to develop, and the real issue is whether these talks are the prelude to further negotiations. At the same time, some very interesting Track 2 negotiations have been going on involving Iranians and Americans and others who have no formal role but have inside takes with the administrations. And some of these have led to informal progress. So there's some hope that negotiations could develop. Christopher, do you think Iran is intent on building a nuclear bomb? I think Iran is intent on having the capability of building Which one. is something quite different, isn't it? It's, it's halfway between... And there are certain aspects of this we, you have to consider. One is the position of the Iranian hierarchy. For example, uh, President Ahmadinejad is, gives all the impressions of saying, look, if we wanted to, we could, and he says sort of rather sort of vitriolic things about Israel, etc. The position of him and the supreme leader, um, uh, Khamenei, is very important because Khamenei is getting a bit of a battering at the moment. Now, if they decide to unseat and can unseat uh, Ahmadinejad, that would be a sign that they're having not necessarily a rethink, 
but a repositioning of power in Iran. And that is likely to be the example that certainly the Americans, some people at the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, are looking for. Okay, uh, Professor Rogers, um, an Israeli strike on Iran would potentially put Britain in a very tricky position, wouldn't it? First of all, how likely do you think that is? Uh, well, informed analysts, people who may not have a security classification but work in this field, say it could still be as high as 25 or 30 percent likelihood in spite of the fact negotiations are underway. And that figure has been held for a number of months, although people are slightly more optimistic. I think a consensus among most independent analysts is that an Israeli strike on Iran could be really disastrous. And of course, once you attack once, the Iranians would then try to develop nuclear weapons and you would have uh, a long potential war. And even any kind of attack would send oil prices through the roof and could well involve other countries. I think this is one of the reasons why behind the scenes, uh, Ashton and others in Europe are really trying to do their best to persuade the Israelis not to take it on. And most interestingly, there's an intense debate within Israel with some quite senior retired intelligence officers and military saying, do not do this, you'd be opening up a hornet's nest. Christopher, what kind of position would Britain be in in that eventuality? Depends what they're asked to do by the Americans and depends what exactly happens. I mean, there's a lot of pressure, as Paul says, in, 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 in Israel itself. The Prime Minister, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, has just got a renegotiation and, uh, of confidence within his own government. And that may sort of put the, the lid on it for a, for, a, for a little while, but it's not going to stay on it. It's going to come up again. It'll come up again in September for all sorts of political reasons there. But the, the, let's put it in, in practical terms. How do you get to uh, Iran to actually hit it? Uh, you've probably got to have air-to-air -air refueling. What do you do it with? Who stands off and saying, look, if this is going to happen, we've got to sort of look around the whole Middle East, so you've got to send forces there, you probably have to send naval forces there. You've got to protect, for example, the Straits of Hormuz, which can immediately be, could be mined and stop the, uh, the oil flow. As, 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 as Again, as, as Paul says, you start uh, interrupting the oil flow. The Western world goes into absolute chaos. This country could survive for nine days, for example, without regular oil supplies. So you can see what's at stake, including perhaps the way it's handled. This is, I think, the biggest problem that could face uh, the, the coalition and David Cameron. And that is if you got involved militarily, the judgment would be so suspect that the very government's uh, position would be on the line. Certainly it would split the coalition. Professor Rogers, um, I was talking about General Sir David Richards earlier on his speech that he made in Washington last night. He also said in that speech that there was a debate in the UK about the affordability of the special relationship between the UK and the US. Um, if that situation did happen, that Israel did strike Iran, do you think that could be a real test of that relationship? It could be. I mean, what the Americans would want from Britain as a minimum is the use of minesweepers in the Gulf, in case there were mines laid, as Chris said, and they would also want the use of the very big base in Diego Garcia for attacks on Iran. This, of course, is if Israel attacked and then it spread to involve the United States. I think the pressures on the coalition would be really very high because, as I say, the prospects of an outcome of an Israeli strike are incredibly difficult to predict but seem to be all bad, and the reality is that the United States is much more likely to get sucked in than Britain is, and if it is sucked in, then the pressure on Britain to take part will be pretty high, but bitterly resisted within Britain across much of the political spectrum, I think. Chris the, the biggest thing the Americans would want from Britain is political support on the Security Council of the United Nations. If they don't have that, that is the Security Council split. Gentlemen, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate 
Still to come 30 years on, Royal Marines and paratroopers return to the Falklands to remember Landing Day. And is entering the Eurovision Song Contest a first step towards EU membership? Plans for drawdown in Afghanistan were top of the agenda as NATO leaders met in Chicago at the weekend. As SITREP's James Hurst reports, more questions were raised than answered. As NATO leaders gathered at the world's largest conference centre in Chicago, they'd long had an end point set for the combat mission in Afghanistan, the end of 2014. What this summit agreed was not to bring that deadline forward as such, but a milestone on the road to the deadline. The NATO Secretary-General, David Cameron and Barack Obama all stressed it was not a change of plan from their last summit, but a further commitment to deliver that plan. Here in Chicago, we have charted the course to complete our current mission in Afghanistan. And by the middle of 2013, Afghan national security forces will be in the lead for security across the whole country. And we leave Chicago with a clear roadmap. Our coalition is committed to this plan to bring our war in Afghanistan to a responsible end. So by the middle of next year, Afghanistan's own forces will be leading security across the whole country, with ISAF troops staying in a supporting role until the end of 2014. Britain's Defence Secretary Philip Hammonds told me that supporting role could, though, still mean British and other ISAF troops having to fight. And we're very clear that until the end of 2014, we will have a combat capability. We don't suddenly, from one day to the next, change role. Uh, it's a gradual process where the Afghans increasingly plan and execute the operations, increasingly lead uh, in response to incidents, calling on ISAF forces for support, for mentoring, for planning advice as they need it. So the role of our forces will evolve over the next 18 months as we come towards the end of 2014. The handover plan was described by NATO leaders as irreversible, suggesting they will not even consider a plan B. Once again, they denied a rush for the exits, but some still have questions about the readiness of Afghan forces to take charge. Britain's Chief of Defence Staff, General Sir David Richards, understands those concerns, but is not unduly worried. Well, they're already doing a lot of it. They lead on about 40% of all uh, missions already. Um, they're involved in about 90%. I think at the bottom end, if you like, the low tactical level, where they're actually executing the mission, I think they're fine. Uh, people like me have some doubts that the institutional understanding will be developed, but we're in there for the long haul well after the end of 2014 in that respect. So I think we've got time to get that right too. The long haul that he talks about after 2014 is long-term training for the Afghan forces. The possibility, as yet undecided, of Britain keeping a small number of counter-terror troops in Afghanistan was also raised at this summit. There is something else which will keep British troops in Afghanistan beyond 2014. The Defence Secretary conceded to me the logistic drawdown will take longer than ending the combat mission. Uh, it could certainly go on beyond the end of uh, 2014, almost certainly will go on beyond the end of 2014. It's a hugely complex logistic um, exercise, so our commitment, to be clear, is that we will be out of any combat role by the end of 2014. Uh, we may still expect that we've got troops in theatre completing uh, the logistic withdrawal. Questions do still remain from this summit. The French confirmation they're pulling their combat troops out this year, regretted by Britain, and highlighting there's still no agreed timetable for which troops will leave when after the handover. But NATO's determination to wrap up its military mission in Afghanistan is as clear, perhaps clearer now, than ever.
The FBX reporter James Hurst, who was at the Chicago summit. Uh, Christopher, uh, post-Chicago, what questions do you think remain unanswered about Afghanistan? Well, the one question which you can't answer, which everybody asks, is whether the Afghan National Army and the police, remember, are capable of providing the security umbrella necessary uh, to stop Taliban, uh, not just Taliban, but the other split and interest groups and the old warlords... Uh, actually taking over and corrupting the whole place yet again. And that is very... It, 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 there is no answer because we don't know yet. It's all right for uh, the Chief of the Defence Staff, uh, General Richards, to say, well, the guys are doing... You know, the Afghans are, are, are taking on 40% of the role already. They're doing it with the backup of ISAF, in particular Indeed. America and the United States. So as soon as after 2014... All the ground rules change, and that's the answer. Uh, that's the question that nobody can answer in, in, in Chicago. Well, Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford is still with us. Uh, Professor Rogers, um, do you think Obama can achieve this responsible drawdown that he talks about? He doesn't want to be seen to cut and run, does he? He doesn't want to be seen to cut and run, but the key thing in your report was the use of this term irreversible. The decision has been taken very clearly uh, that this war would go on forever with the current levels of troops and therefore there has to be a progressive withdrawal. And essentially, obviously, they want to do this in the best order. But as Chris says, nobody knows what the end result is going to be. But since this is timetabled, the key thing is that the Taliban and the other armed opposition groups know this. So to some extent, they may well decide not to keep on fighting intensely, but to actually almost go to ground and bide their time. And the issue here is what happens afterwards. And I think the bottom line, whatever politicians and senior military say in public, is an expectation that within four or five years, the Taliban will have some role in the governance of the country. What role that will be, how big it will be, is unknown. It's very unlikely they will take over, but they will have some role. And frankly, this is now being faced up to after what will have been, what, 13 years of war. Christopher, let's talk about the US and Pakistan, because those border controls, that dispute over the closed borders into Afghanistan is still not resolved. Is there a chance of it being resolved? There's always a chance of being resolved, but we've got to remember that there's a difference here between the politicians in Pakistan and the people who actually run Pakistan, which is the, which is the military. And that's very important. And you have a sense, for example, that after an attack, supposedly an unfortunate attack, uh, by the Americans, the uh, Pakistan military are saying that, A, the Americans got to apologise, not just say it was unfortunate, but to apologise. They've also got to divvy up something like $2,500 per vehicle that's going to go through the borders, and that's why they're still closed. And the Americans say, no, what was wrong with $240, which we used to pay? But it's this difference between the politicians in Pakistan and, and the military. Now, we've got a very good example at the moment of why you get these differences. Uh, there's a man called uh, Dr. Shaquille Afridi. Shaquille Afridi was the man that tipped off the CIA where Osama bin Laden was. Mm -hmm. He has just been nicked by the Pakistanis. For treason. For treason. Uh, and they've given him 33 years and a funny old fine of $2,000 as well. But 33 years in, 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 in a Pakistan slammer. In, 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 dis in spite of the whole world saying, you shouldn't be doing this. But his wife, Mona, 
men were freely say the Americans have just hung him out to dry. They haven't done anything. They got what they wanted and they've used him as a piece Should of tissue paper Should they have done something? Could they have done something? They can't do anything. And this is the whole point. There is nothing that they can do except face off against the, uh, the Pakistan politicians. And when you talk to the, even to the president and the prime minister of Pakistan, and even if you are Osama bin Laden, there is no deal really to be struck without the permission, if you like, of the Pakistan military. And that is a basic fact. And we come back to this whole thing that the future and the solution of Afghanistan lies in in, in Pakistan. And very briefly, just to bring it back, uh, Professor Rogers, to the situation on the ground in Afghanistan, do, do you think that the Afghan forces will be capable of actually uh, keeping security under control within the country post-withdrawal of combat troops? No, I think it's very unlikely across the country as a whole. In much of the country, yes, but in the south and sea, southeast, highly unlikely. And I think there will be large numbers of American special forces staying, there will be drones and the rest. So at a much lower level, the war is actually likely to go on unless a, a full negotiated way can be found out. But frankly, that's not likely at present. All right, gentlemen, stay with us. The United Nations Security Council has been branded unfit for purpose over its handling of events in Syria. The criticism has been made in the annual report of Amnesty International, which says crimes against humanity have been committed and the Security Council has been left looking redundant as a guardian of global peace. The report also accuses governments of failing to show leadership to match the courage shown by protesters over the past year. Presenting the report at a news conference in London, the Secretary-General of Amnesty International, Salil Shetty, said it was important to realise how much had changed following last year's Arab Spring. In 2011, what we saw in every region of the world was people, ordinary people, standing up to demand from their leaders their rights and demanding justice, accountability and dignity. And the message from these people who stood up in the face of bullets, beatings and tanks was very clear that it's not business as usual anymore for tyranny and injustice. Christopher, do you think the UN Security Council does what it originally set out to do? Um, I think it gets as near as it's ever done. And that's a, a bit of a trick answer in, in a way. It has never succeeded. Um, it, it, it cannot succeed. That is not the function of the Security Council. The Security Council consists of the five nuclear powers that were there original. So you originally. think human rights is beyond its brief? It, it, no, it, it, other departments look after it. The United Nations, High Commissioner for Human Rights, etc. They make their reports, they bring things to the public attention. But don't forget that uh, each member of the Security Council and those people that join the Council on a rotatory basis, they are... Each one has its own political interest. Of course it does. And so, for example, if you see if, if there's a position on Israel, then you know which way the United States is going to is going to vote. If the United States votes in a certain way, you know the United Kingdom is going to go with it. So I think this criticism is so easy to make without actually understanding what is the purpose and what are the limitations of the United Nations Security Council. Professor Paul Rogers, do you think the UN Security Council is pretty much redundant? I don't think it's redundant. I think there is an urgent need for reform. As Chris say, it boils down so much to the individual political interest of the states, particularly the permanent five. And in fact, the amnesty report is directed primarily, one suspects, against the Russians and the Chinese because of their attitude specifically over Syria. And amnesty's belief is that the degree of repression has been so high there that in fact the Assad regime could well be um, sort of... Uh, put before the International Criminal Court, but it is simply not going to happen 
because of the attitudes and the splits within the Security Council. One would hope that there might be some way of reforming it to make it more effectively representative in a way in which the individual interests count for less. But that's a far cry, I'm afraid, and, and for the moment we're stuck with what we've got. And it, it just doesn't function as people would wish it could. Well, one country where things have changed in a big way uh, since the Arab Spring is Egypt. Polling stations have reopened there for the second day of voting in the first free presidential election. Uh, Professor Rogers, this is all very promising, isn't it? It is promising, uh, very much so. I mean, it's part of the progress. Um, many of the people who were actually on Tahrir Square, what you might call the, um, the more secular elements, have not been able to put forward an effective candidate and it comes down to a mixture of people who have various Islamic affiliations or are links with the old regime uh, and who we get is going to really depend on, on levels of organization. Behind all of this though one has to face the fact that the military high command is still really the, the one that rules the roost in Egypt and the key thing will be whether the president, whoever that may be, has serious power to actually curb the influence of the military, the military high command rather than the ordinary military. If that was to happen, then I think one, it would be very good progress. But it's good at least to see this election taking place. Uh, very briefly, Christopher, uh, just explain what happens in Egypt in this, in this voting and how that will have an impact on potentially on Britain in the future. Well, you've got, say, seven candidates. They've got to, we'll see who comes to the top and then you have a runoff uh, next month to get it. Interesting, Paul was talking about you know the, the difference between the secular and the military, etc. There's a guy called uh, Habdin Sabahai watch him. He's talking about Nasserism. I mean, he is the man in between. He says, look, I'm not a religious man. I'm not a military man from the old regime. Um, so uh, he might be a dark horse candidate. The thing to believe is that if you're in Whitehall, you want Ahmed Shafiq, uh, who was the prime minister, or um, I suppose Ahmed Musa, who was the foreign minister and the Arab League leader. You'd like those. You know what you're doing. They can, they've got the power to run. They know how to run a country. They know how to run a country and keep the military on side but at bay. And that is the cue and that is the secret for the success of the Egyptian elections. All right, uh, Chris Lee, thank you. Um, Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, thank you very much for your time today. This is BFBS SITREP. A ceremony has been held in the Falklands to mark 30 years since British ground troops landed on the islands. Royal Marines and paratroopers were transported to shore by landing craft in what was the start of the land battle and the turning point of the war. Falkland Islanders held a memorial service in San Carlos where many of them landed. BFBS reporter Charlotte Cross was there. On the edge of San Carlos water, islanders, veterans and representatives from today's armed forces gathered to pay their respects to those who fought and died here 30 years ago. In the peace and the silence, it's hard to imagine it now, but in 1982, British Royal Marines and paratroopers arrived here en masse, coming ashore in landing craft and pontoons. Word of their arrival quickly spread among the islanders, including Gerald Cheek, who was imprisoned by the Argentines at the time. When we heard the news by the BBC, it was incredible news, fantastic news. You know, obviously, you know, we knew then the beginning of the end for the Argentines. You know, so yeah, a very, very joyous, joyous engagement we had. Michael Summers remembers the moment they first came ashore. We went outside and we watched the landing crafts come in. Yeah. It was like silhouetted across the bay, and we thought we'd seen a silhouette of guys walking along the beachway. Uh, we better go in here. They might think we're Argentine. Uh, Guards or something like that. Relieved to see British troops, islanders like Keith Alasia did what they could to help. There was uh, local people that uh, ferried munitions to the front line and uh, you know really did uh, get stuck in. 
you know, even at uh, 10 year old, you know, I tried to help them, help dug a few uh, trenches. The Argentine counter-attack was sustained and fierce. British positions were subject to more than 72 sorties by Argentine fighter planes. The British dubbed San Carlos Water Bomb Alley, but the Argentine pilots had another name for it. They called it Death Valley because more than 80 of their planes never returned. Former commando Peter Wilkin remembers it vividly. Uh, things, things were just coming in from left, right and centre and exploding and, and going off and then it would go quiet for a while and, and then all of a sudden there'd be air raid warning red, we'd all rush out into our trenches and then watch the show again. Islander Brian May said the raids got in the way of their work helping the troops. We used to, uh, you know, air warnings and used to get into a hole but we had to give it up in the end because it was taking up too much time. <laughs> Wasting time for helping out the guys for getting gear ashore and you know, whatever they wanted up in the hills and whatever. Yeah, it was a busy, noisy time. The service of remembrance was held in the Blue Beach Cemetery in San Carlos, where 14 men killed in action are still buried. Prayers were said, wreaths were laid, and the last post was played. Former Commando Peter Wilkin, back for the first time since 1982, said it was a difficult experience. Mixed emotions, because I've lost people that I knew. But then... You see what the islanders are doing for the guys that have been and come back and it's just all overwhelming. Tim Miller said it's a chance for islanders to say thank you. Our message is, you know, we we owe our today to what they did 30 years ago and, and especially to the, to the those that those and the families of those who never went back. 30 years on, the islanders remain very grateful for what was done in their name. Charlotte Cross for BFBS in San Carlos. Now, forget about the NATO summit in Chicago and the Baghdad talks about Iran. Baku is where the real geopolitics will be played out this weekend. Yes, the final of the Eurovision Song Contest takes place in the capital of Azerbaijan on Saturday night. Here's a little preview of what's in store. Well, respectively, those were the entries from Azerbaijan, Turkey, Greece, the UK, Spain, and lastly from Russia, the singing grannies, or Buranovsky Babushki, to give them their proper title. I hope I said that right. Well, Dr. Karen Fricker is a lecturer at Royal Holloway, University of London, who's been studying the politics behind Eurovision. Dr. Fricker, good to speak to you today. Um, true to say the Eurovision Song Contest is more political than a singing competition? Absolutely. It's always been about more than the songs in the Eurovision Song Contest, and I think that's why the contest continues to be interesting and to exist at all. If it was just a, a song pageant, well, that's not compelling, but Britain versus France is compelling, right? And Azerbaijan versus Armenia is compelling. And so that's, I think, the reason why it's endured for 56 years. Tell us a little bit about the host, Azerbaijan. 
Well, um, Azerbaijan is a, a country in transition, I would describe it as. It was, of course, under Soviet rule for over 70 years and has only been independent since the early 90s. And it is an oil-rich country that now has an energetic trading relationship with the West. And, for example, BP are a huge presence here in Azerbaijan. And they've put on an extraordinarily lavish show. They've spent more money than any host ever. They built this hall that I'm sitting in, the Crystal Hall, from scratch in eight months in order to host the contest and did a huge amount of kind of renovation and upgrading of the city. And the people are extraordinarily welcoming and... and, and well, I've been to the contest for eight years, and this is the first time that people have actually just come up to me on the street to say hello. And yet, Christopher, um, Azerbaijan, not the greatest human rights record behind all of this. I was listening, um, Karen, I was listening to Leila Yunus, who you probably know from the Institute for Peace and Democracy yeah, yes. in uh, Azerbaijan. She said this place is like the Middle Ages. Mm. Uh, she was talking about bloggers and journalists being put in jail. Um, she was saying that it's all very, very political and it's, it's rather like the Bahrain and the Formula One thing. Uh, there's money in this and people would just turn the other way. And also because President Elayev, uh, for example, supports the United Kingdom and the United States and Israel uh, as an ally against Iran. The politics of this stink. Uh, and Karen, um, just to talk about the countries taking part in the contest itself, um, does it really play out the politics when it comes to the contest uh, with countries never voting for each other for political reasons back home? Yeah, I, I will say just in response to the other guests that it, it is, it's a, a really binary experience here, that you're in the arena and you wouldn't even know that there was the political realities behind it. But there have been efforts by a lot of activists here to raise the awareness of, say, the media and, and competitors about the real political situation in Azerbaijan. I mean, talking about countries voting and not voting for each other, Armenia and Azerbaijan are arch enemies, and Armenia dropped out this year. It was going to compete, and then it dropped out at the last minute um, because, I mean, they, there was a lot of things said, but it's because they don't want to compete in Azerbaijan. Um, there's always, there's political relationships that are always played out. For example, um, Greece and Turkey used to never exchange votes. Um, now, and Cyprus and Greece used to always exchange votes, something that drove the BBC commentator <laughs> Terry Wogan absolutely crazy. And for example, but those relationships go way, way back. Ireland and the UK are the, like one of the oldest trading partnerships of Eurovision votes. And now, for example, the former Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia used to compete as a single nation. Now the individual nations of the former Yugoslavia compete and often exchange votes. So briefly, uh, Dr. Fricker, who's going to win? I think maybe those Russian grannies could pull it out. She's talking, <laughs> talking about Sweden. You'll see that tonight in the second semifinal, kind of a club track by a woman called Lorien. But it's kind of one of those years where it could also be a dark horse. And there we must leave it. Dr. Karen Fricker, thank you very much for your time today. That's thank all you. we have time for this week. My thanks to our contributors and, of course, to Christopher Lee. Let us know your thoughts on today's programme. You can follow us on Twitter. Tweet us at BFBS Sitrep. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye.